So what is barefaced stories? <clears throat> Testing, one, two, right. So, hi. So this is my true story. Barefaced Stories is a show that me and my best mate put together. That's me, Anthony yeah. Gibbs. Kerry Sullivan. I honestly don't even know how to end the story. <laughs> like... Now we thought to ourselves, how can a couple of lesbos make a baby on the cheap? Here's my name and number. I think you're beautiful. <laughs> they say the clitoris is hard to find, but here it was, turning up in a suburban board game <laughs> in Glasgow in 2011. And then Stephen Fry says, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. And the show begins. Welcome to Bareface Stories. I'm Andrea Gibbs. And I'm Kerry O'Sullivan. We make millions of decisions every day, every second of every day. Like, what should I wear with this new haircut I have? Is it bad to have dessert for breakfast? Should I buy new running shoes? How long is too long in a beard. Should I take the stairs? Or should I just take the lazy elevator? Should I press send? Or should I sleep on it? Should I swipe left or right? Would you rather <laughs> marry Bert Newton or kiss Koshy? I gotta think marry of a Bert. One. <laughs> I gotta think of a better one than that. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with Koshy. We make millions of decisions every day. But what happens when we're blindsided by something? When life just hits you out of nowhere and says, deal with it. Roll with the punches, lady. Harden the F up, dude. When the only thing you can do is just accept what is happening. Because it's happening. Today, we bring you two stories about moments in life that come out of nowhere. Isaac Lim is one of our favourite storytellers here in Perth, and he's also a doctor. He was a... 48-year-old man, uh, overweight, Indigenous, diabetic, but with no other medical history. He had been sitting on the couch watching the television with his family when he stood up, clutched his chest and fell to the ground. 45 minutes later, he was in our emergency department and I was there pounding his chest. When they teach... CPR at medical school, they tell you that you should be aiming for about 100 compressions a minute, which is actually quite a lot. Uh, and they suggest that in order to keep tempo, uh, you can sing a song in your head. Uh, they, they offer examples like Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. <laughs> Or, uh, perhaps more morbidly, Another One Bites the Dust <laughs> by Queen. Chosen, I'm sure, uh, for their lyrical pertinence as much as their rhythmic qualities. What they don't teach you in medical school is the sensory aspect of performing CPR on a real person. I mean, any of you who have done first aid courses will have worked with the Annie doll, the, the, rubber, the rubber people with no limbs. Um, as, I was, as I was trying to keep this man alive by squeezing his heart up against his spine, I could feel the ribs cracking underneath the heel of my hand. I could hear them cracking and I could smell the vomit that I was pumping from his stomach 
into his throat. And I've never been able to cope with vomit. Like, blood I can deal with, poo I'm okay with, but there is something about vomit. It is the, the sight, the, the smell, even the, the sound is just so repulsive. I remember I was, I was on, on one occasion in a little private hospital courtyard, just eating my lunch, minding my own business, and someone starts vomiting on the other side of this brick wall, and the sound is so guttural and so violent that it just took everything I had to pick up my lunch and move inside before I started gagging myself. You know, some people... This man that I was resuscitating wasn't vomiting exactly. Uh, he was dying. The nurses had cut off all of his clothes down to his underwear. He was completely stripped of all of his dignity. I remember thinking at the time, God, he'd be cold if he was awake because the thermostat is all wrong in this, in this hospital. It's always too cold in hospitals. Even in winter, they turn on the air conditioning too high. But I wasn't cold. I was sweating because CPR is physically exhausting. Your whole body knows that it's dealing with an emergency. The adrenaline is coursing through your veins, every muscle was aching and I was getting out of breath. It's hard to know exactly how long we had been going for. I mean, even though you're counting the compressions, you do get caught up in the drama of it all. And that's why there's a senior doctor standing at the end of the bed um, taking in everything that's happening and making the judgment as to when further treatment is futile. Patients who have heart attacks outside of hospital have a very poor chance uh, of survival. And in fact, the chance gets poorer the longer you're out of hospital. So this guy who'd collapsed about an hour ago had virtually no no chance of ever waking up. The consultant said, after this next round of CPR, if there's no improvement, then we're calling it. Calling it? What does that mean? How could you, how could you stop? How could you give up on this guy? I mean, he's so young. He has a family. You know, when he woke up this morning, he was absolutely fine and I signed up for medical school to save lives, not to give up on them. We got through the next round of CPR and everybody stood back and looked at the cardiac monitor. There must have been 10 people in that cubicle and not one person was breathing. 30 seconds. Nothing. The consultant announced the time of death and a sheet was brought over the body and everyone walked away to deal with the next thing. 
next door there was a young woman who had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, which is one of the true surgical emergencies. There was a waiting room full of people ready to be seen. The ambulances were ramping outside, ready to wheel in their patients. I don't know what I was expecting, but I felt like a bell should have tolled or... Uh, we should have observed a moment's silence. I mean, I'm not religious, but perhaps we should have said a prayer or, or something. I just felt that this moment deserved some recognition. I mean, a man had just died. What the fuck? What an earth-shattering moment. I mean, those kids, those kids are always going to remember that time when Dad died. The wife is always going to remember making the phone call to the ambulance. For that family, the world stopped on that day. But in the emergency department, nobody missed a beat and business proceeded as usual, because it has to. I was uh, stunned. I couldn't uh, walk anywhere. I couldn't really talk to anyone. I stood outside of the cubicle. I saw the wife come into the department and a nurse had her arm around her shoulder and she obviously knew what was waiting for her at the end of her walk, but she was doing an incredible job of keeping it together in front of the dozens of people in the emergency department. I watched her being taken behind the curtain to the body of her dead husband. And I heard wailing. Not a shrieking, hysterical sound, but a low-pitched, gut-wrenching, tortured, Wail. And this was the acknowledgement of this man's humanity that I had been waiting for. Finally, somebody was engaging with the tragedy of this man's death by giving an emotional response. I leant against the wall and listened for as long as I needed to in some way pay my respects to this man by sharing in the grief of his bereaved wife. This was the first death that I ever witnessed and I needed some time. Thank you. Isaac was one of those storytellers that kind of came out of nowhere. We curate our, our storytelling nights. Uh, so we have generally six or seven storytellers that we have programmed. And then at the very end of the night, we have a wild card round where people can pop their name in a hat. And if they've been inspired by any of the stories throughout the evening, they can jump up and share their very own Isaac came along one night and decided to go on as one of our wild carders. He has a real knack of telling really funny stories, but also really full-on sad stories. Uh, 
of course it's happening because it's like we go through these things in our lives that come out of nowhere and we're not expecting. You know, we spend the, our day to day hoping that things go great guns, but we just can't control everything. Just a warning before we begin, this next story contains adult themes and some sweary bits. So if you have fresh young ears that are around, put some cotton wool in those ears or some headphones on yours. At our live shows, the crowd can be noisy and the crowd can be quiet. But I reckon this was one of the first times a storyteller stopped everyone from breathing. Here's Ash Unicum. G'day. I'll uh, just tell you a bit about myself. Yes, my name is Ash. And I grew up in a town, or a city called Newcastle in New South Wales, which... Oh, my God, you rock. Anyway, yeah, five minutes. Um, and as this lovely lady can tell you, Newcastle, it's built on the steel, steel industry. It's a steel town. It's tough, you know, rugby league and blokey things. And I grew up playing rugby league, and I was pretty good. You know, I played rep when I was younger, and, you know, I did blokey things, and I went surfing and skating with my brothers and my mates. Um, when I was about 14, I really started to like beer. And going to beer and, you know, drinking and stuff like that with my mates. And that's about when I realised I like cock. Um, And that was my reaction too. Uh, I was like, what? You you can't be gay. You're you're too much of a man to be gay. You you play footy and you you drink beer and... I'm from Newcastle. I can't be gay. Which, you know, and, and it wasn't that I was homophobic at all because... You know, I went, I went to a Catholic school, so a lot of gay guys there. Uh, but, like, I, like I, I had gay friends, and, you know, the, but they were effeminate, um, and I wasn't. So I just, I, I couldn't understand how I could be gay. And I, uh, I struggled with this for quite, quite a long time, um, uh, to the point where I, I just, you know, there were, there were no role models that were masculine that I, that I could aspire to be like, and... I tried to hide who I was and I tried to have girlfriends and I tried to pretend that I was something that I wasn't. And anyone who's been in that situation knows that it takes its toll uh, to the point where one day I couldn't handle it anymore and I went into the shed and I tied a rope and hung it over the rafter and tried to hang myself. I started to black out, I fell and I thought that was death. I woke up on the floor, dizzy, a little sore, and realised that the knot had come undone, and my first thought was, you're so gay, you can't even tie a knot. <laughs> <sighs> and then my second thought was, you know, you've survived this for a reason. You know, you're not supposed to die yet. You, you have a long life ahead of you. As hard as that's going to be, whatever. So I... You know, hid all evidence that I tried and snuck back in the house and pretended like it never happened. And that was when I was about 15 years old and I struggled, struggled quite a lot for, you know, the next year or so and I, I found myself online chatting to people about what I was going through and I found it quite a reassuring place where I could escape and be who I really was without anyone actually knowing who I was. And one person um, convinced me that I should probably you know, strike up the confidence to tell someone close to me. And I chose my best friend. She lived across the road. And, like, many times before, I went over her house in the middle of the night, knocked on a window and asked her to come out and talk. And I sat there in the street and I told her that I was gay. And she was a bit shocked at first, but then she seemed to accept it, gave me a hug and said, OK, I've got to go to bed, I'm really tired, and went back home. 
And the next day I got a phone call from a friend I, went, I played football with who said, oh, just thought you should know, um, Bex told everyone at school that you're gay. And I was like, what? no, no, that didn't happen. No, 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 I'm not gay. It's, yeah, she, she hit on me and I knocked her back. So that, that's what really happened. He's like, oh, dude, I don't really care. Do you want to go play squash? And, <laughs> and that to me was like, he was one of my best mates. This other bloke, rugby player, you know, he was tough. He drank beer with me and he could not care less. But this, this girl that I thought was my best friend, she couldn't handle it. She actually got the cops after me saying that I threatened to kill her and she um, was a product of a bikey mole so she had bikies chase me down and shit like that. As a pretty scary as a 17, 16, 17 year old. Um, and my mum found out through the stories and the rumours that were going around and I, uh, you know, she confronted me one day and I completely denied it because, you know, how could, how could I... I faced that again after the reaction I had from my best friend. Um, one night I was quite drunk. I just drank a six-pack by myself out in the shed and I looked up at the rafter where I'd attempted suicide before and I thought, I can't do that again. So I called my sister who lived in Queensland and I uh, was crying on the phone and I said, she's like, what's wrong, Ash, what's wrong? I said, I'm, I'm gay, Shen. Her reaction was, oh, Finally. And, and, and it confused me quite a lot because, like I said, you know, I was this masculine, blokey man that, you know, I, I couldn't be gay, but there were certain people around me who either didn't care or had assumed and they just, they loved me for who I was. And I was uh, still struggling with this for quite a long time after this until one day I was in the study and I'd just been on the computer talking to these, you know, faceless people who helped me get through what I was going through. And my mum came in and said, what's wrong with you? You know, why won't you talk to us? What's the matter with you? I was like, mum, there's nothing wrong. You know, just leave me alone, please. And my dad looked at me and came up and said, no matter what, you're my son and I love you. And gave me a hug. And it was at that point I realised that it didn't matter. I wasn't a sexuality. I was someone's son. I was someone's mate. I was someone's brother. I was, I was fucking Ash Unicum who liked footy and liked cock. And fuck it, I can do that. Thank you. Being in the audience the night that Ash Unicum told that story was the most amazing feeling. There's, there was the moment uh, where he's just about to attempt suicide and he fails his attempt and you can hear the audience just breathe kind of like a, a sigh, a, a little laugh because it was it was at that point in the story where the audience needed to get some kind of air out of their body, whether it was laughing or crying. Stories like that are so hard to hear sometimes, but I think they are so important for us to know that people are going through this. And I think coming out these days can seem like a kind of an easy thing to do, but it's not. And props to Ash Unicum for sharing that story with us. If you're listening to the Bareface Stories podcast and you think it would be a great place to advertise your thing, this is the part where we would talk lovingly about your thing. Right here, enthusiastic words about your thing. Honest, 
meaningful words. I love that thing. That thing is so great. I wish I had it. Life would be easier for people who had a thing like that because it's a thing that makes life easier. So if you'd like to advertise that thing here, please contact Bareface Stories at info at bareface.com.au for advertising rates. Bareface Stories live shows are put together by Andrea Gibbs and Kerry O'Sullivan and recorded by Chris Wright at the Bird in Perth's nightclub district. Our music is by Odette Mercy and The Soul Atomics. Our technical producer and editor is Amber Cunningham. Leave us a review on iTunes and we can keep bringing you some more fantastic stories. Bareface Stories are told live on a tiny stage. In a huge state. In a massive country. Where no one can hear you scream. Or laugh. Or cry. More Bareface Stories next week. My mum and dad are travelling around Australia at the moment and mum's just like, le- learn, how, le- learn how to use um, FaceTime. So she's calling me with video all the time. And uh, it's always like her head. And then dad will be in the background walking around like, G'day, love, and then just keep walking. <laughs> and then the other day um, they FaceTime me, but I was driving in my car, so I only got the audio. And I'm chatting to mum and I hear this... <laughs> and I'm like, I heard that. And I was like, see, Jeffrey, she can hear. She can hear it. Everyone can hear it. <laughs>